Hello, and welcome to Harder Than It Looks, Parking Uncovered, a podcast to facilitate connections and illuminate real solutions to common problems within the parking and mobility industry. I'm Brian Wolf, President and CEO of Parker Technology, and I'll be your host as we speak with parking professionals from across the industry at all levels to uncover tips, tricks, and best practices to manage what we all know is harder than it looks parking a car. Joining me on the show today is Maria Urshot, the Deputy Director for Park Houston. Maria Urshot holds a CAP certification and is the Deputy Director for Park Houston, the city of Houston's agency responsible for the management of on-street paid parking, enforcement of parking codes, and administration of parking permits. She leads a team of 80 and provides policy recommendations to the mayor's office. Now that sounds hard and important. Maria is a certified administrator of public parking and holds a master's degree in public administration. She serves on the board of the International Parking and Mobility Institute and is a past president of the Texas Parking and Transportation Association and women professionals in government. So in today's show, we're gonna cover curbside management and ways to do it better challenges and successes with public stakeholder engagement, Maria's tips and tricks for effective time management, and then finally what it's like to sleep on the side of a mountain and be alone with only your thoughts and a pen and paper for five hours. Maria, welcome to Harder Than It Looks. Hi, Brian. Thanks so much for uh, having me on today. This is exciting. Okay, so, so the first First thing I'd like to do, a little bit different, we've, we've probably all heard your story about how you got into parking. Other podcasts have probably covered that, so, but and I'm sure we'll get that. But what I like to do is I like to hand you the mic and I tell you to go back as far back as you wanna go and then just tell us your story, how you got from one place to the other. What I found is hearing people's history is really informative about what made them. And so I'd like to start there. So. I hand you the mic and just tell us about tell us about you. Yeah, no, great. Yeah, everybody has a really unique parking story. Nobody looks for the parking job, you fall into it, right? And my yeah. story is very similar to what other people have experienced. I actually I have a my undergrad is in journalism and I was working in communications here for the city of Houston. I was a public information officer for municipal courts and I always anticipated or expected that my career would be in communications, maybe in the public sector for now, go to corporate communications at some point. So while I was public information officer at municipal courts, I left on a vacation. And the day that I left, the mayor reorged the municipal courts and the director who had hired me only two or three weeks before I was new in the job was moved to a different location and uh, over a different division. She was no longer over that department where I was supposed to be reporting to her. I was really concerned. I'm like, I called her from my trip saying, should I come back? What's going on? She said, you'll be fine. Don't worry. Go on your vacation. And this had been a long planned vacation. So I went and when I came back, there was another director who had been appointed and he did a reorg and he put me in parking. And that was, I was shocked. I was just like, what is parking? You put your car in, two, in, two, in between two lines. That's it. What else is there to this? Why do we need a parking division? And they moved me over there. And next thing I was getting calls transferred from people who were angry that our meters weren't working. Because back then we had those single dumb meters and yeah, they just, coins in them. yeah, it was 2005 when this happened. And so they were terrible. And the parking division had been up until that point being really treated like a cash cow where it's just go write tickets, go write tickets, the exact opposite of how you want to run a parking organization. So we had a really tough reputation. And for two weeks, I would come to my office literally every day, get yelled at by customers and cry because I was like, this is not what I expected. <laughs> this is not what I anticipated. And then after two weeks of just being miserable, I said, either you leave and find a job that you love or you figure out how to make it work here because you cannot keep coming here every day and crying every night because you hate your job. That's just not how your life is going to go. So I started reading and I came across at the time the High Cost of Free Parking by Donald Shoup was just uh, out. 
So I found Shoop online. I found a lot of the IPMI website was online. There were other parking websites online. So I just started reading. Some people had blogs. There was magazines. I started reading. And I really got interested in the high cost of free parking. I sent an email to Dr. Shoop. I'm like, I'm a newbie. What do I need to know? And then I had a supervisor come in about two, three weeks later on. And a lot of people know her in the, in the industry, Liliana Rambo. She taught me a lot and took me under her wing. And before I knew it, I was like in love. I'm like, this is great. It's something new every day. There's always something different. It's so unique. It contributes so much to your city. And it's just so undervalued and underestimated in its potential. And now here I am, 18 years later, I started off as uh, a public information officer, went to manager, deputy assistant director, and now I'm deputy director. I've been overseeing parking here in Houston since 2011. So it's, it changed my life. <laughs> yeah, I'll say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what, a, what a great story. So I'm going to ask you to go back just a little bit further because I can hear this lifelong, this thirst for knowledge. I can hear, I'm not going to take it. I'm going to I'm not going to be beaten down. I'm going to either conquer this thing or I'm going to move on. And I'm wondering where that came from. What, what are the formative years of your life? I, where, how did you get there? Yeah, no, that's a really great question. And I think about that a lot. And I think some of it has to do, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that my parents were immigrants and I was first generation here. And immigrants raised their children in a way that, you know, you have, if you want to get ahead, if you want to, you've got to learn, they focus on education, they focus on just putting your head down and doing all the hard work. Not to say that other parents don't do that, but it's different when you're the child of an immigrant and, you know, what they tell you and how they, because they're facing hurdles in a society that they didn't face back home. My parents came from Pakistan, my father came from Pakistan in the 60s and he was a brown doctor with a funny accent. People didn't know what Pakistan was. Up until I went to high school, a lot of people didn't know what Pakistan was or that it was the country. Yeah. And so there's this really this need to conform so that you can get ahead and really work hard because immigrants, they feel like you've got to go above and beyond because that's how you will get ahead here. Yeah. And so I think a lot of it comes from that. And there's something about parking, <laughs> too, I got to say, that once you get the taste of it, it's like I know people who have left the industry and come back two, three times. Yes. And they, they come back. If Once you get that taste, there's always that challenge. And if you're that type of person who doesn't really do well in a same routine, like yeah. this is what I've got to do every month and this is every quarter, this is the same thing. Parking is your world because it is so dynamic and ever-changing. And there is a new challenge. You Just when you think you've heard it all, you're like, oh, man, I've never heard of that happening before. That's new. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. I, I like to say as well, because I, I think you perfectly embody this, you have to be a little bit gritty, maybe a lot gritty to be in parking. So you endured two weeks of pain and agony and then you decided you were gonna fix it, right? Yeah. And so as a parking professional, you have to almost thrive a little bit upon, on pain, right? On pressure, on grittiness. But I think then we all appreciate what hooks hooks me is certainly hooked me in parking is how critical it is and how underserved it is or or how invisible it is. Yeah. You go back, you think about your your parents as immigrants. My father was first generation as well. And I, I think their mentality was to to be very quiet, but just go get the job done and raise their worth that way. And I can't think of a better industry where that's ex exemplified with than with parking, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Parking is not where you don't get loud in parking. You only get in trouble when you get loud in parking, right? Your customers get loud. You got to stay quiet sometimes. <laughs> yeah. No, that's yeah. great. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So then I'm fishing for your best. I knew it was hard story. You touched on it just a little bit because you got people yelling at you for two weeks. <laughs> for me, I was at it. So I've been a parking eight years. And, and when I got here, I was like parking, how hard could it be? You pull a ticket, you pay for parking. And then of course my mind was blown when I saw all the interactions and the complexities and all of that. So my first, my, my first inkling that there was a little bit more was my first job in parking was just to work a parking booth at Pi in March of 2015. 
And so I walked in and saw hundreds of vendors and all of that. And I was like, oh, there must be more here. So what's your story around when did the light bulb go off for you that it was more than just two lines and a car in between? Yeah, no, that's a really good question. I think I had, I was dealing a lot with customer service when I first started in parking. So I had a lot of customer interactions and there are like particular customers that have stood out in my history that made me, they challenged me. Yeah. And I, I'll tell you one, as a customer and a neighborhood where we had meters on some streets, we didn't have meters on all the streets. And it really needed to be a full meter plant, but it was a very mixed use neighborhood and residents were very upset when they started seeing us put meters in their neighborhood. This was like in 2000. 10 or 11, I think 11. And we told this customer, she was head of the civic association and she was very influential politically. Um, and she was just adamant, you will not put meters in this neighborhood. And we said, if we don't, they're all gonna be parking in front of your homes. Anyhow, ended up being that we were not gonna do that. And she was very against us, very upset with us. I would see her at public events and she would make it a point to come to me and not be so kind. Wow. But. Here, you know, I said, I'm going to make her my friend and I'm going to figure out how to fix this neighborhood. I'm going to figure out how to fix the parking situation, not everything. But now, 10 years later, we have meters everywhere over there. We implemented a parking benefit district. When we do projects, she calls me. She will message me. What do I need to do? Which elected officials do I need to go talk to? How can I help you? And she will always go to them and say, very kind words about us. And this is a woman who really just didn't even want to look at my face when she first met me. Wow. Um, Congratulations for that. (laughs) Yeah, thank you. So I think just we have to keep repeating the same things over and over sometimes, I think, for our message to get through, which goes back to what you said. We have to be really thick skinned and just laser focused on what is the end goal. And maybe it's not going to happen in our timeline. Maybe it doesn't happen as quickly as we want. But Parking is very personal to people, and it's sometimes you have to take a little bit of time to win them over. I feel very strongly that we can't just go in and railroad people and say, this is the way it's going to be. And I know some places still do that, and I just feel like stakeholder engagement and having them on your side is just so much better for the end results. Yeah. Okay, so I want to just go back to this woman and ask what was the, aside from you just engaging and saying, I'm sure you genuinely told her, I'd like to understand your perspective, but I need you, I want you to understand my perspective. What was it ultimately that turned her, like, was there a conversation or was there a point that she have some, you, it, classically, you point something out to somebody and then they experience what you just pointed out, like everybody parking in front of her house and you're, she's suddenly the lights go on. Was there an aha moment for her that sort of allowed things to get a lot better faster? Yeah, I think it was that moment when they started parking and what everything that we had told her yeah. had come to bear. And then she reached out and we started talking and we held a lot of community meetings in the neighborhood and some were went really well. Some, I had residents that were very unhappy and we handled all of those. You, we take this slings and arrows as parking professionals. We've all been called like the worst names in the book, right? Worst names. Yeah. And, but we still stand by what we say. We say, this is, I understand you don't like it, but if we want to mitigate the issues, this and this are the things that we need to do in order to, to do that. Yeah. And you'll see some relief. And I think just whatever we had said like, just happened. Sense. And that yeah. was to turn the lights off and she saw the engagement that we made. And I think that was a definite big turning point for her. Wow. Okay, so this is a perfect lead to the next question, to, or to my next, frankly, my fascination. So I find it very interesting that you had a journalism background or a PR or a communications. Where I've seen it done best there are very strong outbound communication channels to the parking constituents, but also up the chain. And so my question to you is, you took time with this woman to, and if you told me her name, I would call her name versus always saying uh, this woman, because that, that, that doesn't sound always so polished, but you took time with her. When you're trying to get the word up to the mayor's office, and you're dealing with people. My experience is somebody who's one degree away from parking absolutely believes what I believed eight years ago. How hard could it be? And so you have somebody who 
doesn't understand parking, doesn't understand the complexities, and you're telling them, trust me, this is what's going to happen because you've seen the movie a hundred times, right? You put a meter there and suddenly, you know, the people that you want there are there and the people that you don't want there are there. So give me, tell me your perspective on the best way to up level, to communicate up so that these folks, so that you can get through the first or the second time and not have to bang on the door three or four times. And maybe it has to be three or four times, but is there a, have you had success and what, what do you think the tricks are for it? Yeah, so I can write a really awesome policy memo. I am an expert at policy memos. And I think one of the things that in my undergrad is they always told us write in an eighth grade level. So break everything down, make it really simple and high level and focus on the benefits. But also we have to let our elected officials know of potential downsides. And, but, and then how do we handle those downsides when they happen? I think, uh, you know, a lot of times what we do is we have uh, presentations and we have to present these in front of a council committee and we have to present them to the mayor. Um, so keeping things just, you know, I like to do everything at an eighth grade writing level. It's, right. That's what I focus on, trying to keep it simple and it's no disrespect to the folks that are reading it, but it does jargon and words that are too related to the industry. It just, the the meaning gets lost in all that. Yeah. If we explain it in layman's terms, then I, I can get more people to understand. And it's, it just, that's what you want, right? You want the yeah. understanding there. Yep. For me, it's the ability to break it into bite-sized pieces. So at eighth grade level is the pro tip, right? So it's not about keeping it simple. It's not about it's not about not using big words. It's saying, okay, eighth grade level, and not because the mayor's not smart, and not because the all the council members aren't smart and they can't handle complexity. But you're trying to get big ideas across in big, wide swaths, so, swaths, so that they understand the implications. Right. That's uh, hats off to you on that. Then the second thing that I think is really good, and again, this has been a lot of ways. Your the the mayor and the your government officials probably appreciated number one that you were going to try and protect their backside. So this is what we're going to do. This is the backlash. This is probably what's going to happen. We need to be prepared for this. And if you don't want that, then we can go to Plan B, C, and D. But now you give them a full picture of options. You're not ramming something down their throat. And I'm sure it wasn't always that clean, right. but it, it was just the idea of giving them a couple of different ways to go, but then you're also trying to help them see the future. So yeah. I, I don't know if you have a particular story about a success story on that front. If I've led the witness, hopefully I haven't led the witness too much. <laughs> um, I told you when I first started reading Dumbledore I got really interested in parking benefit districts. And that the more I read about it, the more it made sense to me. I'm like, this is something you need to put meter somewhere reinvest that revenue back into the district. At that time, all of our money was going to general fund. We were like a cash cow. And so in 2010, when we started working on this one, and this was a different mayor, then Mayor Parker was mayor. We had a nighttime economy, Washington Avenue, that was just, it was a mess. And one of the things that I kept pushing was a parking benefit district. We need meters on the streets. The employees are taking all the parking. That's why the patrons are going and flooding the neighborhoods. And then the the neighbors are not getting any uh, relief. And so we really promoted that parking benefit district. We started with Mayor Parker. We had 27 community meetings. We drafted ordinances. I communicated with Dr. Shoup. I'd say, this is what we're looking. Because it wasn't every parking benefit district kind of has its own formula, depending on the city. And I think, and that started off with a policy memo. This is what a parking benefit district does. This is what it's done in other cities, and this is what it could potentially do in our area that we're looking at. And here are the positive outcomes, and here are the negative outcomes. And that started off with a simple policy memo. Then it progressed. Let's okay, stakeholder meetings, engaging the elected officials over the district. It was district council member C, and giving that same, not that policy memo, but then developing the, the presentation that we gave to our stakeholders based on that policy memo. Yeah. Um, but 27 meetings and, you know, a year and a half later, we had a parking benefit district on Washington Avenue and it's now been there for since 2013, we went live. So it's going on 10 years now and they've done multiple projects and I have a meeting with them on Monday to discuss an, another new project. So 
That's I think that was, that was a good success. Started yeah, with a, a demo. That's a great story. Do you have similar challenges around curve management? Oh, yeah. Look, in 2005 in Houston, our goal was to provide as much on-street parking to the public as possible. And in our mind at that time, the public was what? Single occupancy vehicles, right? Yes. Here we are in 2023, city of Houston's building 1,500 miles of dedicated bike lanes. We are repainting roads to be transit only lanes. We are widening our sidewalks to improve walkability. There, there is so much focus on alternative modes of transportation because a city like Houston, we've got to figure out how to get people in and around you know, better. So parking is not the number one priority. Now we have to, there's all kinds of competing demands for the curbside. You have pickup, rideshare pickup and drop off. You have deliveries, the dedicated bike lanes. When they came and told us that we're going to lose 150 spaces for the first dedicated bike lane through downtown, the businesses lost their minds. We were like, oh no, 150 spaces. I was like home alone kid like this. There, there is a lot of demand for the curbside and we can't build anymore. Right. So how do we prioritize use at that curbside? And then how do we manage it? Do we even know what's out there? We don't have, we don't have a digitized curb. I can go to my public works department and say what signs are here and hopefully their database is up to date. We haven't digitized our curb and that's something that we're going to need in the, in at least maybe short term, probably a little bit longer term future. And do you know what activity is going on out there? We don't have sensors in the ground. A lot of cities are putting cameras up to try and understand better. We haven't put in any technology like that, but we're watching what other cities are doing. Yeah. Because if you don't know what's going on at the curb, how are you going to better manage it? Yeah, so it sounds like that might be one of the next hills or hurdles for you. Yeah, you I, think I think we're actively climbing up that hill right now. Yep. Yeah. yeah, okay. All right, any particular advice for somebody who's right behind you or right in front of you? The one thing that I say to anyone who comes into the parking industry is make friends. When you go to the IPMI, when you go to your regional conference, meet people, talk to people. Parking and mobility professionals are the most generous people with their knowledge. Yep. Our industry is very unique that we don't hold our secrets, right? We're ready to share because if I'm facing a problem today, I'm sure there's someone in another city who's already dealt with that problem and all I've got to do is send them an email or give them a phone call or call someone else and they're going to say, go talk to that city. Yeah. Get that network because there is nothing as helpful as having those people who've already experienced it to help you work your way through that problem. So that's important. Get involved with IPMI. I, of course, I'm a board member, so there's a lot of education there. When I, like when I talked about in 2005, when I got into parking, I was just looking for anything I could find online to teach me more. And there is a ton of information out there, a lot of knowledge out there. And I would encourage anyone to go to your regionals, go to IPMI, they offer workshops, they have all kinds of great education that would be really helpful. Yeah. So those are my things. And also, listen, <laughs> that's really hard. I think that's good advice for anyone. Yeah, for sure. Uh, with your customers, when they were, you know, in the beginning, when they were ranting and raving, I was always trying to talk them down. And I learned real fast. I'm like, there's no talking someone down. You just let them go. And then when they're quiet, then you say, okay, so how can I help you now? Yeah. Talk a about a life skill. <laughs> That's all a tough one, right? <laughs> we just want to be heard. Yeah. And, yeah. and sometimes we just really just want to yell at someone. <laughs> For for their perspective on an injustice, and they don't understand, why would you ever want to charge for parking? It right. should just be free. Right. Sadly. Right. Yeah, that's how it goes. Okay, now, I, now as we're thinking about meters and you're trying to solve curbside problems, I, I think of much bigger problems. I think about Houston and how you got to go under bridges. And I've, I just looked it up. They've had... Houston has experienced five, five hurricanes in the last 10 years or so. Uh, Harvey, I believe, dumped 50 inches of rain on Houston in four days. I have to believe from a parking perspective or just from a city infrastructure perspective, that was a, a real nightmare. Maybe, perhaps it was even personally. I'm sure they're, half of the city was really struggling with a bunch of water. So yeah. what was your experience? 
So Hurricane Harvey was, yeah, that was a, a lot of rain over a very short period of time. I was actually, the day of the hurricane, I was moving into my new place, which I could not reschedule because, of course, you don't know about a hurricane until a week in, and then everybody's rescheduling, and my movers couldn't do anything. I spent the day moving, and then I think it was Friday, and then at 8 p.m., the rain started coming, and we got everything in the house, and I just left and went somewhere else because we weren't sure what it was going to be. We knew it was going to be bad. We didn't expect it would be that bad. But uh, yeah, 53 inches of water in a flat city that has drainage challenges was a big, huge, huge lesson for the city of Houston. We have a resilience plan that was put into place shortly after Harvey. We, the mayor brought in a resilience director and the city worked on a plan. One of the things that happened is here in, in downtown, we have a huge underground garage where a lot of the fleet vehicles uh, are parked yeah. and they were not moved in time. So we lost a ton load of vehicles at Harvey that we had to come back to work after a little while and there was no city vehicles. A lot of fleets were just put out instantly because that garage was flooded. Just everything in there was destroyed. And that garage took a couple of years to actually get, we still just this week, City Hall has a basement where our procurement department would stay. So you'd have meetings with procurement. That was completely flooded in 2017, August 25th for Hurricane Harvey. They had a ribbon cutting this week to reopen the basement. So it's taken that long to, to design and build something that will be resilient to withstand the, because we will have flooding again. Yeah. Sure. But now the focus is, okay, if we're going to have it, we need to build resilience into these structures. And a lot of our structures are very old. There is no opportunity to build resilience. Yeah, it's going to be a challenge for Houston as we move forward. And every year hurricane season comes and we all just, for I think about a good two years, every time after Harvey, every time it rained, I think a majority of Houston's got PTSD because we get scared. There are stories of people parking their car under a freeway bridge because they were they could not drive in that rain and they didn't know where to go it's it was, i can only imagine yeah it was harrowing yeah we're now moving forward we have a climate action plan we have a resilience plan there is a, a really a, a strong eye that the administration has on keeping city facilities and infrastructure and that includes like our water plants our fire stations having boats for the fire department that was something these are all things that we've had to refocus on since harvey yeah. Interesting. And it sounds, again, hats off to you. It sounds like you might have a seat at the table when they're talking about resilience plans and all of that. And I, I can tell you that there are some cities I've talked to that, that they wouldn't be invited to that conversation. Shockingly. Yeah. yeah, we have a sustainability team that oversees the climate action plan and the resilience plan, which kind of work together yeah. and our climate action plan has a huge transportation piece and parking plays a role in that so we have been engaged with them in fact in 2016 houston's hosting the world cup and there are sustainability requirements that we have to fulfill for fifa so we just started meeting about that and they invited parking to talk about what sustainability efforts can we demonstrate to fifa that we're doing yeah it's but it is it's a hard-fought battle you know getting at the table because parking is frequently an afterthought yeah you know? and we've had that struggle it's not perfect all the time there are still times where i'm like we should have been there why didn't anyone call me yes so, so i would imagine for this the same way you just told the story a while ago about building bridges and relationships you seem you strike me as a strong relationship driven person i would imagine that the relationship piece of it is just as important as anything else around all the things that we talked about before so you might you might just say a word or two about how hard you've worked at building relationships across aisles and into disciplines that are probably not obvious, that yeah. they would be obvious bedfellows, if you will. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's really important. And that cities are notorious for functioning in silos. I'm parking, I just do parking. I'm water, I just do water. But the truth is, in today's world, you can't function like that in a silo. You have to be able to work with your colleagues in other departments and we've made relationship building is core to that i will i've been with the city 20 years now and a lot of the folks that i work with have been here as long there's new folks too we had a new chief transportation official who joined us i think it was like in 2020 right around COVID time 
And as soon as I heard, I reached out. I sent an email. I'm like, welcome to the city. Would love to chat all things parking with you. I know you probably have a lot of great things to say. So I think maintaining those relationships and I, I like to keep those departments informed when we do things over here. And maybe it doesn't pertain to them, but I don't know if it doesn't pertain. That's for them to decide. Yes. So I'll send them information. This is what we're working on. This is what I'm presenting to city council next week. Take a look. Let me know if you have any concerns or set up a meeting. And I think that helps a lot in keeping us in their mind yep. when they have things that come up and they, they can remember. But out of sight, out of mind is a thing. Yes. So I try not to stay out of sight. Yeah, good for you. <laughs> okay. So again, another pro tip is just ship the information because if they were, if they had returned the favor, and they were like, I don't know if it has anything to do with parking. You're like, holy cow, of course it does have something to do with parking. You wouldn't have, you wouldn't know. Giving to get and then just letting them decide if it's important to them. That's great. Again, all those are all great pearls. I could see why you've had the success that you've had in Houston. Oh, I guess I Thank you. Okay, so now I'd like to shift gears just a little bit. You mentioned you, you were very intentional about mentioning time management. And so I, I would be remiss if I didn't like mind for gold around your time management tips and tricks. <laughs> God, my time management tips and tricks are very, very of the norm and what everyone does. I make lists. I stick to my list. I set deadlines. I stick to my deadlines and I keep them on my calendar. If there's something that needs to be done, I will get it done by the day I put it on my calendar and it will always be before it's supposed to be due. Now that's, doesn't mean I'm perfect every single time. I, I have been late to things or missed things, but when you are working a full-time job and you've got, for a while I was going to grad school, I had a two-year-old and I was working and that that's when I think I really had to figure out how to better manage my time. And yeah. I was already a list person, but it became more of a, a science to me. Okay. I have Excel spreadsheets for birthday parties. So it's, I try and stay as organized as possible and keep my lists up to date. And I just, I know everyone says this, but I love the feeling of crossing something off my list. <laughs> That's good. No, yeah. it's great. So again, I hear a commitment to getting things done. And again, that's, that could be the tip or the trick all by itself, right? Just this iron will to do what I said I was going to do and, and then make sure that I don't forget it, which it's lists, it's calendars. It's all of that. Okay, what's good? You're just applying modern tools to an old problem, which is too much to do and not enough time to do it. Right. And I don't know about you, but I actually get better with my time management the busier I am until it gets overwhelming, right? The, the bucket, the water going into the bucket, when it overfills, then all bets are off. But if I'm under pressure, the more pressure I'm under, the more I have to do. Like when you were your two-year-old in school, that, that probably was a little bit bucket overflowing, but I get better. I remember things. I'm sharper when I'm busy, when I'm, I get lax when I'm not as busy. And so no. I, I prefer to, to be busy. We're going to get into the, the last topic or the last question that I have. And it involves a trip that you took where you participated in offsite with the American Leadership Forum, where you did five days, I think of hiking and rappelling. And, and so tell us a little bit about the organization, how you got involved. And then what I really want to know is how, what did you learn about yourself in five hours of solitude? <laughs> I was a cohort in the America Leadership Forum class, class 53. And it's really different from your standard kind of leadership program. It's an intense year long program and they bring folks from all sectors. There's government, nonprofit, private sector, politics, education. And the, the goal is to, to build trust amongst the cohort and have them foster that collaboration to make good things happen in the community. And if you're nominated for the American oh. nationwide, I think they, they're in more cities than just Houston, but you have to be nominated and go in and they look for folks that are leaders in their sector and also who have a dedication to the community, want to make things better. Yeah. And they really focused on what's inside. It's very, it was very unusual for me. The first meeting that we had to give a seven minute story of how did we become who we are? And of course, in a seven minute story, you focus on the highs and the lows, right? That's how you became who you are. At some of the lows and some of the highs, we sat around in a circle. There was 18 of us and the stories were just 
so moving. I mean, it, it was, we were all crying and we we're looking at each other going, this is leadership. We're all sitting here crying, listening to these stories. But it really created this bond amongst this group. Yeah. And we spent the next year working together. And so we go to Colorado. So they, one of the big components is the wilderness and really mindfulness and meditation and kind of being one with wilderness. And the last activity that we do after all the hiking and rappelling is called the solo. And they strongly recommend that you don't take your cell phone with you. They don't want books. It's just a journal, a yoga mat, a sandwich for lunch, a pillow, and a pen. That's all they want you to do. And you go sit in a secluded part of the mountain by yourself. You're not even close to any of your cohorts. And they just tell you, sit there in your thoughts. And I thought it was just ridiculous. I'm like, what am I going to do for five hours by myself without a phone? You're not even going to let me read a book. I'm like, I'll go nuts. I don't know what I'll do for five hours. This is insane. So I get to that mountainside and um, I sit down and, you know, I just sit there in my thoughts for a little bit. Yeah. And you start thinking about things, things that impacted you, trauma or happiness, different things. And I started thinking about my mom a lot and she had passed away in 2017. And I started, I was even talking out loud. I felt almost a little bit crazy. And I was asking, just, I was writing things down. I was asking questions. I was just trying to be in that moment. And I, there was one moment, I will never forget this for as long as my, I live. I asked a question. I think I said something that it sounded so sappy to me. I said, why did you leave me, mom? And the trees, the aspens, I was surrounded by aspens. They all started swaying in the wind and they were saying, shh. Hmm. And I, at that moment, I, something inside of me just broke and I felt like the wilderness was speaking to me. Everything, there was ants crawling along my mat. I was seeing messages in that. I started writing furiously in my journal. I was writing letters to people I love. I was writing to myself. And it was all these thoughts and it really, what it taught me is we're so busy every day. We talk about time management and how busy we are, but to be able to sit there and practice mindfulness and just sit in your thoughts and not run from them yeah. and face them. Yeah. It was probably, it was so terrifying to me, but the moment those aspen trees shook, I felt like something just lift from me and so much that I drew. I am not an artist. I can barely make stick figures. I drew a beautiful aspen tree. I'll send you a picture of it one I day. I love that picture. Yeah, well, we'll post I, I it. We'll that. post it on LinkedIn. That'll be the, we'll do that. I'll send it to you. And I said, I'm going to, I'm going to, the aspen tree is a really interesting story because they have eyes on the aspen tree, right? As the branches cut off it leaves an eye there and the branches die off so that other branches can grow, which is like a reflection of life itself, yeah. right? Yeah. And I just the aspen tree just holds so much for me now. And I know I probably maybe I might sound like a crazy hippie to some people, but sitting in your thoughts for five hours and nothing to distract you and just letting your thoughts flow. Yeah. Can be life changing. Yeah. Do you think that your mom was talking to you in that moment? I really felt like it was. Yeah. Because I felt like I was getting upset at that point. Yeah. And I felt like the trees were almost like taking me in the arm in their arms and saying, "You're okay. Yeah. You're gonna be fine. Yeah. And it, that's why it was crazy. I just can't explain it. I'm not that type of person, really. I, you know, I thought solo was. I was like, this is crazy. You guys are nuts if you think anything is gonna happen out here. And I said that in front of everyone. And then I came back all red, puffy-eyed. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tie a loose thread. And okay. perhaps you've thought about it already. But think about your recalcitrant parking person who you gain trust with and over time. And so you're walking into the wilderness going, come on, this is, I've got work to do. And yeah. then five hours later, you're like, okay, so that was might have been some of the best time I ever spent, right? So I don't even, I don't remember if I've mentioned it on a podcast, but I collect heads up pennies from my mother and she sends me heads up pennies. I am telling you it is real. Am I one of those people? I think I am one of those people. I'm a very, I, there, she's comforting me. The other day I was upset about something and this, I am not kidding. And I find pennies 
So I buy donuts every Thursday morning, and this place where I buy donuts is cash only, so it is easy pickings. I can find a penny whenever uh-huh. I go into this place, right? Now, I didn't find a penny this particular moment morning, but I was walking out, and I was upset about something else. I don't remember what I... I might have been upset about my sisters, and if they listen, they'll know that I actually do get upset sometimes. <laughs> and I am not kidding. Sure enough, there is a heads-up penny right in front of my car door. You're kidding. No. <laughs> And I could tell you a hundred stories of that. So those Aspens, it is real. And what a fantastic gift that your mom gave to you and that you gave yourself. Yeah. And and it really, I've been, since then, I've been focused on trying to meditate and I'm not getting any better at it. I try, I try because I really think we should all be meditating and being mindful and thoughtful. And, but it's hard to do, man. It is so hard. It is really hard. I'm going to give you a book to read because I think you're a reader. You will really appreciate this. It's called The Artist's Way. Okay. And so what this woman, what this author espouses is meditation, yes, but also journaling. And I don't do it as nearly as religiously or as often as I should, but you already, you saw the power of journaling, right? The ability to just write down and just the act of writing it down almost gave me the answer or at least gave me the insight right inside of the exercise itself. And The Artist's Way, it's a great book. And I totally agree with you. The thing that gets me with meditation is that I literally, I set my timer for eight minutes in the morning and I give my license to not, I give myself a license not to think about anything. That's the most comforting thing. And then obviously your thoughts float up and all of that. I'm there with you. (laughs) I'm going to get that book though. Thank you for the recommendation. I'm going to read it out. Yeah. I think you'll enjoy it a lot. Yeah. Um, I certainly did. Okay. So I'm going to go into what we call, it's not really a lightning round phase, but I'm trying to ask a a consistent block of questions across uh, all of the people that participate. So question one is if someone in your organization hears a phrase, they immediately know that originated from Maria Urshad. For example, for me, it's uh, experiments never fail or it's not over until I win, right? If somebody were to hear that phrase, they immediately know that I was the originator of the phrase. So down the line, two or three people down the line, what is Maria Urshad known for from a phrase perspective? That's a good question, Brian. (laughs) (laughs) I usually just say, let's get it done. (laughs) Yeah, I, I think I'd struggle on having a standard phrase that I say. Can I question number two? What you, what would you say the hardest thing that you've ever done in your life? I think that solo for American Leadership Forum was really hard. Okay. Really hard and really eye opening, and not what I expected. So. Yeah. Okay. What is the hardest thing about your parking job? Oh. Um, boy, let's see. I think the hardest thing about the job is. Probably, I love talking to my customers, but when I get the customers that just refuse to even see my way, yeah, that is the hardest job. I can, I can get, you don't agree with it, but when you're going to keep thinking that I'm wrong or I'm bad, I just, that is the hardest thing for me because I don't find that makes sense. Yeah. Like you can just, we can disagree. But don't think that it's wrong just because you don't agree with it. Just being closed-minded and being shut off from an alternative. Yes. Okay. I get that 100%. Okay. So if you could wave your magic wand and fix anything about parking, what would you fix? I would fix the perception in the public of what parking is and really try and get them to understand, you know, that this is a very challenging, complex field. And the people who are working on this field deserve way more respect because I see way too much happening to especially our frontline staff. The way people talk and treat them, unacceptable. But I would change the public perception. Why can't we be like doctors? Give me that respect. (laughs) The the moment you you said that, I flashed back, I don't even know what movie it is and I don't know what the theme was, but I had this picture in my head of this aura coming out and then suddenly people's eyes were opened and suddenly they just got parking. 
Yeah. Wow. How do we do that? Mm. I communication. Yeah. Talking about it, putting our best, our officers that are out there. Yes, they may be ugly to you, but we never ugly back. Keep being professional. And I've actually had customers who have admitted to being ugly to officers and then coming back and saying, I'm sorry. And they I'm were very sorry. professional. Yeah. yeah. And like they realized later. But, you know, that there's a lot of work being done out there to engage parking professionals in other, in, in the larger transportation ecosystem. And transportation engineers didn't really pay us much attention before. And I think that's important to it. Yeah, for sure. Being out there and saying the good things and getting the attention. All right. So I think what we should do is we should go to Hollywood and convince (laughs) someone to do a parking movie. Yes. Yes. Let's do a movie about parking professionals. But good. Actually, you know that what movie was that with the bunny who used to write parking tickets? It was, a, it was a cartoon movie. I can't remember. Everyone oh. said, everyone in my family said, oh, that's you. I'm like, okay, I'm the bunny. <laughs> the, the bunny. Oh, is, is that uh, Bugs Bunny and Elmer Fudd or somebody? I... No, it was. I can't remember the name of the movie. It was uh, probably like from eight, nine years ago. But there was a little bunny who would just spend all day writing parking tickets to the other animals. So <laughs> I don't oh. remember the name of it. I'll send it to you, though. <laughs> okay, that's great. All right, so when you're not parking cars, what what, what do you do for fun? So for fun, I spend, I have a 17 year old and she's a junior right now. She's going to be going away to college and she definitely does not want to stay with me in Houston and go to college. So I'm spending as much time as I can with her. We went on two vacations this summer. Um, I took her to a book reading last night. We've got a couple of, you know, I love Broadway musicals. She's Mm. not a fan, but I drag her with me. (laughs) Spending as much time with her doing different things, just movies. Priceless. Yeah, just yeah. making memories, trying to make memories. And Beyonce's here in town this weekend. I'm still looking for two, uh, two tickets for the last minute, but man, I can't afford that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's uh, okay. So she's in town. She's in Houston? Yeah, she's in Houston tomorrow night and Sunday night, two shows. It's okay. Houston. It's going to be bananas. Houston's got to be bananas. Yeah. <laughs> okay, good luck with that because you're, unfortunately, your parking people are going to have to work, right? Luckily, it's at the stadium that has its own parking, and I don't have any on street. I only have two or three streets in the area, so we're not so impacted when it's at the football stadium. When it's in downtown, then we have challenges. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, that's good to know. All right. So then, last question for you is, what are you most proud of? I hate to say this again, but my daughter, we raise our children to be better than us, and she's so much better than me. She's smarter and kinder, and I'm just so proud of her. Um, other than that, I know I'm biased, but um, I, I got to say my team here at Park Houston, we, I really, we talk about projects, we put our nose to the grindstone and everyone here gives 120%. And it, I've been working with some of these people for 18 years since I started and they're just the best group of people. I just, it's like another family. and. I just, I love what they do. I'm proud to work with them. Definitely the folks around here, my second family, my parking family. (laughs) Yeah. I hate to tell you this, but they are a direct reflection. Just the hour that we've spent together, they are a direct reflection of their leader. So 120% cares about the parking, cares about, that's all the things that you just described about your people. They're reflecting it right back to you. So that's awesome. I can see why why you've uh, been at it for 18 years and you've got people that have stayed for 18 years that that in and of itself given the business climate is also yeah. a, uh, a big stamp of approval so congratulations for that welcome back to segment two of harder than it looks in a, in this segment what we're trying to do is give our parking peeps a little bit of perspective, help them appreciate that there are others that have hard jobs or that there are other things that are hard. And obviously we're just trying to do a little bit of entertainment as well. With me today is the esteemed Tim McGinn. Many of you might recognize him. Tim had an illustrious and might say an infamous career at T2 Systems for 16 years. Welcome, Tim. Thanks, Brian. Good to be with you this morning. It's great to have you. And maybe you could refresh everyone's memory about how you fell into parking 16 or it's probably 18 years ago or so. 
I'd like to say that I knew from a young age that I wanted to get into parking, but that is not the fact. I fell into parking after meeting Mike Simmons, gosh, 20-some years ago. And he had this interesting little company. And my, my first thought, oddly enough, given the title of your, of your podcast is, interesting company, Mike, but how hard could parking be that you need software to run it? <laughs> And that began a about a 16-year run with T2, which was just great experience, great people, fun to get to know the industry. Yeah. Yep. We all share that eight years ago on December. Let's see, what would it have been? December 31st, 2015, I would have said to you, how hard could parking possibly be? Absolutely right. <laughs> yep, yep. Little did we know. Little did we know, indeed. All right. The reason that Tim is joining us today is Tim did something pretty hard. He actually climbed or hiked to base camp one of Mount Everest. And real quickly, I can tell you way back in probably 2004, still young and idyllic and thinking, I should put climbing Mount Everest on my bucket list. And I boarded a plane to London with John Krakauer's Into Thin Air, and I started yes, reading that book. Yes. And by the second <laughs> chapter, it was very clear to me, I was probably somewhere over the Atlantic, I decided there was no way I was going to climb Mount Everest. It was, it was a great book. So what on earth, first of all, give us just a little bit, of, a little background on how high base camp one is, how many base camps are there, how, how close to the summit were you actually, and then... And then we'll get into some questions about what would make you do something as 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 ambitious as that. Sure. Yeah. Important distinction. I, I did not summit Everest. This was base camp. So that's a very important distinction that my wife likes to remind me of. She said people were asking her when I was getting ready to leave if, if she was worried about me. And her response was, he's not summiting Everest. It's just base camp. So you got to keep that in, in, in mind. Everest is 29,000 feet. Base camp in comparison is about 17,600. 17, and there's a standard route of base camp. There's about a 10-day trek from the town of Lukla to base camp. And that's the common the trek that folks take and probably would have been a really good starter for me. But I instead had joined a team that was doing about a three-and-a-half-week trek that circumvented, went off to the side and did several summits higher and then came down to base camp and then came back down the trek. And it's really interesting experience, challenging for me personally, both physically and mentally. But that some of the opportunity that we had to go off the beaten path and experience some of these summits and passes that were just phenomenal. And then come back to base camp and meet up with people from around the world who were achieving a long-term dream. That the spirit of camaraderie and excitement and things when you finally reach that point with people from all over the world was just uh you know, unforgettable for me. I'll bet. Give us a snapshot of maybe the two or three hardest things about what you did. Yeah, I was with a group. There were 10 of us in the trekking group and six Sherpa, who the Sherpa are just phenomenal. They, are, they know what they're doing. They anticipate the mistakes you're going to make. They make <laughs> life so much easier and their guidance is invaluable. But I, I do recall a couple of points where we're a week into the hike and you're getting higher and deeper into the mountains and further up. And I should mention, I'm the oldest guy in this group and they're all a bunch of accomplished ultra marathoners and they've summited the highest peak on three continents and all this kind of stuff. And my goal was, I just don't want to screw them up. I want, I want to be able to keep up, not hold them back and not screw them up. And so you're getting further and further into this thing where you're, we're almost to this pass which is Chola Pass, which is about 18,000 feet. And, and you're at the point of no return there, right? And so there was a little bit of self-doubt that crept in that said, if this is getting harder every day, if I don't think I can make this, maybe tomorrow morning I get up and get with one of the Sherpa and say, I'm going back down, let the rest of those guys go because I don't want to hold them back. And there was that moment of, do I keep pushing or, or don't I? And I think I didn't know until when the wake-up call came at 3.30 to layer up and put on spikes and put on the uh, torch to go straight up for the next six hours. I didn't know until that point if I was going to do it or not. And wow. I, I will say that some of these things, and it relates so much back to what we deal with in business and everyday life, is the things you push yourself to do that it's the fear of the unknown, and can I do it, and am I good enough, and do I have I prepared well enough? And once you get there the sense of elation and accomplishment 
and ability to translate that into bring on the next challenge. I didn't think I could do this. We did it. Right. What's next? Let's go. And there were a couple of yeah. moments in that that were with the help of the team and with preparation and with just the kind of sheer determination to get it done. You get there and you say, yeah, it was hard. I could, I'm, I'm ready for the next challenge. And, and those are really good things to experience in life, I think. All right. So I got a couple of things. So that obviously it's, it's clear the camaraderie that gets formed as people do really hard things together. I can certainly relate to that. Uh, the self-doubt that comes with, I don't know what I'm doing. I, all, all of us in business, if we're being honest with ourselves, some of this stuff, we're making it up and you press on because that's just the thing to do. Uh, but then getting there, and being able to celebrate with your team is is pretty awesome as well. All right. So you're going to go straight up for six hours, you said? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Ice. So one of the things that struck me in the book in Into Thin Air was where they were going across ladders on ice and doing yeah, some yeah, yeah. really crazy stuff. How crazy did it get on your ascent? Yeah. the The stuff that you saw in the movie was probably Kumbu Icefall, which is craziness and that is beyond where we went so we were crossing glaciers we were on pretty steep terrain with sheer drop-offs we were wearing crampons getting through the ice but we were not in that twenty-four thousand foot altitude climbing across metal ladders to and and hoping that the uh, ice under your feet doesn't melt while you're doing it so i I have total respect for the folks who did that and when we arrived at base camp And there's a sense of accomplishment because we got there and you look at all of the couple hundred folks who are actually going to summit Everest. So much respect for the people on that side. Right. Right. Like we did something we thought was hard and it it doesn't even compare. It's not an order of magnitude harder what they're doing, but it's what we prepared for and we accomplished it. And I think you keep that in mind in this, in business and anything else. What did you meet your goal and did you do it in a way that you can be happy that that you did it well? Yeah. Okay. So then at 18,000 feet, 17,000, 18,000, you said you went to a summit. Did you get higher than 18? Because you said base camp is 17 or 18, but did you get to a summit that was higher than 18? Our highest point was about 18.5, And we had a couple of passes that were above 18. So there were a couple of those that you accomplished. And then, frankly, from a physical demand standpoint, yeah, base camp was, was anticlimactic. Okay. We'd been hired. It had been harder. The base camp was not as hard. But the camaraderie of being with all the people who were accomplishing their goal there was, uh, was pretty memorable. Yeah. Okay. So, so, that's, so my question back to 18,000, my frame of reference is as a pilot – if you fly above 12,500 feet for more than 30 minutes, you have to have oxygen on the plane. That's why low and slow pilots like me, or like I used to be, you stay below 12,500. But it, it, to be at 18,000, I, I would imagine the air is a lot thinner. So tell me about breathing at 18,000 feet as you're walking straight up. I would imagine it's hard. Yeah. Again, I, I would point back to the wisdom and guidance of the of the Sherpa team. They had a couple of rules that they had us follow. One was, as we were ascending for the for a couple of weeks, their rule was you never sleep 15 feet higher than you slept the night before. So okay. you might hike up further for acclimatization, but you come back down. And you did a bit of, of, of backtracking. There were a yeah. couple of times on the trek where we slept in the same place twice because we needed that push ourselves to get up, but come back and sleep at that level. And I think because of guidance like that and other planning that they did and the speeds at which they took us, we were able to make it. I talk a little bit about preparation. It's, it's tough to prep for elevation when you live in the flatlands like you and I do. Right? Yeah. Yeah, I think we're at 800 feet here. So there was a lot of, I'd be running steps every day. I'd go over to Butler and run steps in the stadium or ride my bike downtown and run the War Memorial as many times as I could. I had a, you've probably seen those oxygen deprivation masks. Yeah, like a respirator. Yeah. So I'd be out at night in January in the neighborhood with a weighted backpack and the mask, (laughs) hoping nobody called the police on me. But the (laughs) thing of it was, on those oxygen masks, you can dial it to simulate 12,000 or 15,000 or 18,000 feet. And it's not that is going to prepare you, your lungs, 
But what it does is it gives you that experience, what it feels like. So when you get to the real thing, you're less concerned. You've been there before. You've done that. You've experienced it. You've survived it. And you know it. And I, again, all this stuff applies back to everything you do in everyday life, right? For sure. If you prepare yeah. for it, you're able to experience it better when it's time to be on stage and, and make it happen, right? Yeah. I love the analogies or the parallels to business. Don't sleep 15 feet higher than right, right. you did the day the, the, than the day before. Or what, the night what was before, yeah. Yep. Okay, the night before. Yep. And so I, I think about plateaus in business, right? So sometimes you gotta you stretch and then you come back down and then you stay there for a couple of days and then you stretch yourself. You're almost like, it's like preparation. So that's really yeah. good stuff. And not only for your teams too, right? You, yeah. you have to understand in business if your team's ready to go to the next level and how you get right. them there. And maybe you expose them, but bring them back to normal and then push them a little more, right? Yeah, I love it. I love the parallel for sure. Okay, so you... Talked a little bit about the physical training. Obviously, mentally, you're working through all of that. Tell me about the accommodations. I'm sure you had four-star luxury all the way to base camp one. <laughs> well, yes, absolutely. I, I, I would say that there was this for all of the just sheer beauty of nature and the warmth of the people. It was balanced by the conditions. <laughs> not exactly the same levels of, of hygiene, not exactly the same types of accommodations. We did sleep in shelters. And so that was a huge a benefit. They were not heated, but we had a place to put our sleeping bags and you were not exposed to, to rain or wind or snow or anything else while you're in the shelter. And most of these shelters then would have kind of a common room where you could get some food. And it was heated by like a, a pot belly stove in the center of the room, which was heated with yak dung. Conditions wise, you would want to go in there to get a little bit of warmth because it was warm enough to take off your gloves, gloves and hat. But the air you were breathing just made your throat and your eyes burn because of, the, of, of, uh -huh. of that. And some of those, some of the conditions it was, you had to just balance. I was thankful that we weren't sleeping in tents the whole time, but, but it was, no, it was not four-star luxury as well, as you would expect, but uh, yeah. made, made for a good experience. The, there were certain tricks you would do. We would carry two-liter water bottles for the track. At night, you'd go in and fill them with boiling hot water, and you'd spit, sleep, stick those down in your sleeping bag. And that'd keep you warm for four hours or so, and it was, that was a plus. So yeah. you'll have yeah. those types of things. Um, but um, one thing that we uh, probably... You know, the, the conditions masked this a little bit for us. Dave Carter, who led our group, uh, phenomenal guy. He has probably done 15 treks in Nepal. He's, I think, okay. maybe three, two or three attempts, one successful summit of Everest. Wow. Knows his stuff. And he had told us going in, he said, be prepared. You will be sick at one, at least one point during the trip. Either it's going to be mountain sickness, it's going to be respiratory conditions because of the... the the yak dung heating yeah. is going to be digestive issues because the food or the water you're not used to, you will be sick at one point. And all those were. We didn't realize, and I look back now and say, I wonder if this is what it had been as challenging. All of us contracted COVID while we were there. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> oh the COVID at 18.5 is, is, probably made the, the trek a little bit harder for some of us. Two of the guys ended up getting medevaced out because of wow. some lung issues. So there were some challenges there, but you look back and you say, probably good we didn't know because we just pushed on thinking it was part of the trek. <laughs> Ignorance is bliss. That's right. All right. So as we, as we wrap this segment up, I'll leave the mic with you to share with us your parting thoughts about the trip and the things you learned about yourself and about your teammates and just bring it all full circle to those that are listening and how difficult it is to park a car. <laughs> I, I think overall it's the common messages of you, you're, I think often you're able to do more than you might expect, right? Yeah. And, and pushing yourself, preparing yourself, and then mental strength to push through things that, that you find challenging can have such payoff. And I've heard you say many times, I might get the phrasing wrong, no such thing as failure. It's what you learn and you fail fast, you learn, you move on and, and do the next thing. And I think this is very similar to that. It's, it's you prepare for something, you, you push yourself to a new height 
and um, you, you're either going to succeed or learn, right? There were two other things that uh, I mentioned, Dave Carter, two things that he imparted to us that, that I take back and apply. One is, you know, in business, a lot of times we're playing chess. You're thinking, how many steps ahead? Am I doing the right things? And, you know, if I need to be here at the end of 24, am I doing the right things to get there? Am I preparing my team to get there, right? Dave's uh, uh, advice to us on this truck was, you cannot be thinking about the summit. You, it'll overwhelm you. All you can do is say, what is my job today? What do I need to accomplish by the end of today? Otherwise, it'll overwhelm you. And I think that reframing sometimes, you bring that back. And I think about business a little bit differently in that sense. Yes, you got to plan ahead. Yes, you got to be anticipating what's coming. But sometimes you really need to focus on doing the right thing today and focus on just get this done correctly and it'll build on itself. And that's where we went with that. So I think I those things are, are really valuable. The last thing I would share is, again, this is a, a Dave Carterism was we're, our, our planning can't be to summit. Our planning is a successful return. And so oh, okay. <laughs> it's, that's interesting. getting there is not good enough. You got to get back. Yeah. <laughs> and, okay. and so sometimes I think in life we're like, oh, you anticipate something is going to be so great and you get there and then you realize, OK, there's more to it. There's more that needs to be done. There's cleanup. There's after after effects. And I think, again, just good advice to apply some of those. Ideas. Oh, that's I love it. I can recall having days where I'm overwhelmed and you literally just look down, take the next step. I love that. And then planning to get back, you're, you're trying to get back. It's not to the summit. It's a two-way street or yeah. it's a it's a full circle, if you will. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. you got to leave enough in the tank to get home. <laughs> I love it. All right, Tim, thank you so much for sharing and congratulations. You made it and you came back. So <laughs> we have video evidence that you made it back. And so I congratulate you and thank you for taking time to join us on uh, Harder Than It Looks, Parking Uncovered. Pleasure to talk with you, Brian. Appreciate you having me on and, and kudos for you for this on top of all your other successful ventures and all the good stuff you and the team are doing at Parker. Really enjoy watching your success. That's a wrap on this episode of Harder Than It Looks, Parking Uncovered, presented by Parker Technology. Please leave us a review if you liked what you heard. Make sure you tune in next month as we continue to uncover tips, tricks, and best practices to manage what we all know is harder than it looks. Parking a car. Bye for now.